turn to the book of Naomi. Can you find that one? Ruth, there you go. The book of Ruth. But for some strange reason, I'm calling it the book of Naomi. Didn't know I'd get to rewrite the Bible, did you? The new name for the book of Ruth. Only four chapters long. Three main characters in this short story. If the book was to be named after the plot that it follows, you would call it the book of Naomi. If the story was named after the person who talks the most, you would call it the book of Boaz. But it's called the book of Ruth. And the words of Ruth, of the three characters, are actually the least and the shortest. So why do we call it the book of Ruth? Whatever. I hope you're familiar with the story. Ruth is a young, widowed lady from a country called Moab, who is... Uh, gathered into the family of God, who unknowingly to herself will play one of the most important roles in the history of Israel, ending up even being an ancestor of Jesus himself. This short story is going to tell you about what mercy is. What does it mean to know a God who forgives? What does it mean to know a God of mercy? Mercy is the key issue of this book, to learn what mercy is. Perhaps one of the most powerful lessons you're going to get from this very inspirational story is this. That God can bring great good even out of the most dark place. Just in case you didn't hear that. God can bring the greatest good even out of what looks like the most darkest place. Amen. Amen. The book ends with a genealogy that triumphs over the incredible darkness. You see, this book, it says in chapter 1, verse 1, says, In the days of the judges... Has anybody ever read through the book of Judges? How many know that's got to be one of the darkest books? How the people continually forsook the Lord, continually handed over to their enemies. It's a dark book, Judges is. But there's a theme that God hears the cries of His people. You know what? He hears the cries of His people even when they don't repent. And God is moved to compassion even when His people don't repent. And He rescues people who don't deserve rescuing. It's a great theme that's there in the book of Judges. But this story of Ruth or Naomi or Boaz takes place against the incredible darkness of of the book of Judges. The story of Ehud, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. Out of the extreme gloominess you find in the book of Judges, there emerges in the midst of it a story of grace. A story of mercy, a story of faithfulness. 
that in the darkest of situations, God is still going to have His way. He's still going to triumph in the end. And some obscure woman from a foreign country becomes an ancestor of Jesus. Wow, what a story. Could you please explain to me what kind of a God we serve? Amen? What kind of an amazing God we serve? When you read the book of Ruth, you might not seem so impressed because in the book of Judges that was so dark, you've got miracles, you've got angelic visitations, you've got angels appearing to Gideon, you've got all sorts of things taking place, supernatural, but not in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, there's no miracles. Well, we'll find out later. There's no signs, there's no wonders, there's no angelic visits, there's no mighty exploits. It's only a story of ordinary people going about and struggling over ordinary lives who have to respond to real tribulations like famine and death and they're struggling to survive. Now, while you might not read of an angelic visit or, or exploits or whatever, what you're going to discover hidden in the background, well, this is good news, church. Hidden in the background, God rules over everything. Hidden in the background, when you can't see the angels and there's no mighty miracles and exploits that you can see, when it's all dark, I got good news. Hidden behind human view is this reality that God rules over every detail. Amen. There's a famine in the land. Well, God's had something to do with that, as we'll see lately. But you also want to learn that God in His providential care in the ordinary, unimportant, everyday details of normal life that God can take the mundane and turn your destiny on mundane things. Come on. What kind of a God? How did it that truth just happened? To go to the field of Boaz to work. Just by chance. Pure luck. How did it happen that Boaz, just by pure chance, happened to show up at that very moment? At the end of the story, when Boaz is looking for that relative that's closer than him, how did it just happen by chance that when Boaz wanted to do business, the man walked right by? I'm telling you, we serve a God that nothing happens by chance. The most mundane, ordinary, boring details of our lives, God can take that and turn your destiny on it. Would you please tell me what kind of a God we serve? What's interesting in the book of Ruth is everything is backwards. Everything is in reverse. Everything. Have you ever felt your life was going the wrong direction? Anybody? That your life has been going the wrong direction. I want to let you know that everything in the book of Ruth is in reverse. You have men. Can you believe this, ladies? Men draw water for women to drink. (laughs) 
<laughs> I tell you something. That's not the norm of the culture. It's the women who go to the well and draw the water, but not in the book of Ruth. I tell you what, ladies. In the book of Ruth, it's the women that propose marriage to the men. Ooh. In the book of Ruth, it takes a foreigner from a country that is condemned by God, a place called Moab. It takes a woman to fulfill the spirit of the Mosaic law by giving herself, dedicating her life to care for a widow. And it takes a stranger to Israel to give that lesson, to teach Israel about the meaning of covenantal love. Everything in the book of Ruth is backwards. This is a masterpiece of a story. It doesn't take you long to read it. But there's a theme in the life of Naomi. and We call it from being empty to becoming full. Now that's good news. From emptiness to fullness. You can shout amen at that one if you like. How God takes you from emptiness to fullness. In telling the story, the author wants you to understand, though it's all hidden in the background, wants you to understand God's nature. The book assumes that God is almighty. The book assumes that God rules the world, that he sets up nations and he tears down nations. The book assumes that God is supervising the moral order of the universe, punishes evil and rewards good. But the greatest thing the book wants to teach, is not everybody can assume this, is that God's nature is to forgive. God's heart is tenderness. God's heart is compassion. The book wants to teach us that God's heart is mercy. You do remember when Moses asked the Lord, show me your glory, what Moses heard and what Moses saw. You do remember how the Lord sent him on a cleft of the rock and passed by, and there the Lord proclaimed his name. You do remember his name, don't you? I hope you have these verses memorized because I quote them enough to you. He is loving. He is gracious. He's kind. He's good. Let me tell you about him. He is abundant in goodness. He's benevolent. He's loyal. He's faithful. I told you those things before. That's his nature. That's who he is. That's what pumps his heart every time it beats. It goes mercy, forgiveness, compassion. That's the beating of his heart. That is his nature. He always acts. He doesn't just speak words. He acts. He doesn't just have emotions of good towards people. He acts towards people for the benefit of other people without any consideration for himself. That is our God who is going to reveal himself in the book of Ruth. Now let's see if we can remember the story. How quickly can I tell the story? That's four chapters long. You will remember it's in the days of the Judges. As I've already said, the book of Judges is the most bleak 
dark and desperate time you might read of in the history of the book of Israel. The book of Ruth opens with this, there's a famine in the land. If you are familiar with the Old Testament law, there's always a reason for a famine in the land. And that reason is this. Israel has broken covenant with the Lord. Israel has been going after other gods, and Israel has been rebellion. What that means, according to the Deuteronomy covenant, that God curses the land because they've been going after other gods. So when it says there's a famine in the land, that should trigger in your memory all the book of Deuteronomy and what happens when you go after other gods. Now the correct response for Israel should have been to repent. But there is no indication in the book of Ruth that anybody repented. But that's what should have happened. If you could read Hebrew, which I can't, but it's interesting if you could, that that word turn is found 12 times in chapter 1. They returned to Bethlehem. They turned to the right. They turned to the left. They turned this direction. They turned that way. Turn around and go. You find the word 12 times of repenting and turning in chapter 1, but never once do they turn back to God bit of a clue what they should have been doing. And all of their turning, why aren't you turning to God? bit of a clue there. They should have been repenting, but they didn't. Because of the severity of this famine, in the city of Bethlehem, now this is ironic, because Bethlehem means the house of bread. That's what it means, house of bread. And in the house of bread, there's no bread. And so this man whose name is Elimelech, He leaves Bethlehem, the house of bread, to find bread in the fields of Israel's enemy, old enemy, Moab. Of all places, could you please tell me why you go to Moab? Why there? Have you forgot who Moab is? Elimelech, have you forgot who Moab is? Do you understand how Moab was birthed in the first place, incensed with Lot and his daughter? Do you remember that it was Moab that resisted the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, going into the promised land? Moab says, you're not crossing through our territory. Do you remember if it was from Moab that seduced the whole nation into idolatry and adultery? Do you remember that of Balaam? Gave good advice, just get the women from Moab to go seduce all the men. Do you remember that Moab in the loss of Moses was constitutionally excluded from the assembly? Have they forgot the recent oppression of King Eglon, the fat one, in the book of Judges? Why on earth would Elimelech take his family to Moab? Why would he do that? You'll learn later in the story that Elimelech had sold his land in hard economic times just to get finances. You'll learn later that he soon spent the profit, if he had any much profit, on the sale of his land. And he was left in absolute destitute poverty. And the famine is in the land, and this man is in destitute poverty. He has a wife whose name is Naomi. And he has two sons called Malon and Kilion. They had been original settlers there in Bethlehem. They're not just 
new migrants in. They're old-time people, that family back in Bethlehem. But they've had to move out in the time of famine of all places they go to Moab. Their very names, when you understand what their names mean, tells you that some tragedy is about to happen to this family. The name of Elimelech means, my God is king. That's a good name. But he can't trust what his own name means. He has a wife named Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. It means pleasant. But it's a short form of a name because every other name in the Bible that includes that, it means God is pleasant or God is made be pleasant. But her name is just pleasant with no reference to God in it. Malin. You don't want, don't name your kid Malin because it means sickly. And if you have a child, don't name it Killian. Please don't name it Killian because it means coming to an end. Frail and coming to an end. So the fact that these names are there are telling you something terrible is about to happen to this family. To the acute listener, you probably have picked up clues from Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10 that after Abram went to the promised land, that there was a famine in the land. And what did Abram do when there was a famine in the land? He went south down to Egypt, and there he got into a lot of trouble. There's a famine in the land again, and Elimelech is going to leave. You know what's going to happen to him. He's going to get into a lot of trouble. After he arrives in Moab, instead of life getting better, he just ran from the clutches of famine, and he ran into the clutches of tragedy and death. Because very soon, Elimelech dies. That also, if you know your book of Deuteronomy, if you know the book of Leviticus, that is a covenant curse for rebelling against God to die. Naomi is left with her two sons. They end up marrying two Moabite women, which is another curse that you discover in the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Leviticus. I ask you a question. Why did Naomi allow her sons in contradiction and in violation of the law of Deuteronomy, to marry Moabite women. Why did she do that? Was she compromised in her faith? And after ten years living in this foreign land, the two sons, Malon and Killian, also die without bearing any children, no sons to their name. That, if you know your Deuteronomy laws, is also a curse of the covenant. So we've got God, there's curses going on here in the opening verses of the book of Judges. Now Naomi is left without a husband. She is left without sons. In that culture, that means this. You are destitute. It means you have no male support to help you. Meaning for you, as a woman in that culture, in that time, there is no security, there is no hope, and there is no future left for you. You are going to beg the rest of your life. You are destitute. That's what this means. After these tragedies, Naomi heard that God has been faithful to Israel, even if they haven't repented. There's bread. In the house of bread. 
that probably came as a little light into Naomi's dark world. God has come to the aid of his people. Even though there's no sign of repenting, he still calls them his people. He still recognizes. There's, this is an act of divine grace. They have no hope of the future living in Moab. So Naomi decides to head back to Israel and her two Moabite daughters-in-law will begin the journey with them. You've got three destitute widows going back to Israel. But listen to this. But on the journey, Naomi, who has been secretly harboring a lot of bitterness over the negative things that have happened in her life begins to spill out that bitterness to her two daughters-in-law. She encourages both of them to go back to Moab. Her testimony is, my God hasn't done me much good. Why would you come with me? Oh, it's almost her bitterness coming out. Go back to your mother's home. You see, that's in reverse. You're supposed to go back to your father's home. <laughs> but go back to your mother's home, which means you need to go back and consider remarriage to somebody else because there's going to be no hope for you in Israel being foreigners like this. You have no future with me in Israel. I am a destitute widow. I have no economic support. And there's going to be no links for you in this place. Go back. Naomi, in spite of their bitterness, has a little bit of small spark of faith because may the Lord have mercy on you. I don't know if she just said that because it was traditional to say that or she believed in spite of the bitterness she lived in that God could still have mercy on these two Moabite women. But they're not going to leave her. They, they are attached to her and they resist leaving Naomi to go back as a destitute old woman old widow on her own. But Naomi is going to give them a reality check. She's too old, she says. I can't produce any more sons for them to marry. If you could read this in the original Hebrew language, which I can't, but I can read scholars who do read this stuff, she uses some rather crude language when she makes that statement. I'm too old to have any more children. And do you expect, do you wait, if I could have any more children, would you wait 20 years to marry another son of mine? But then she reveals the real reason behind what she's saying. She has become bitter. Instead of repenting of what went on in Israel and Bethlehem years ago, instead of dealing with it, instead of submitting to the laws of God, what she does, she's become bitter. And what she has done is she accuses God of all the troubles in her life. God's testifying her. She blames God for the crisis. She feels she's the target of God's anger and God's overwhelming power is unleashed against her. Look at everything she's lost. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's lost her home in Israel. They've lost their property. They've lost it all. And she is deeply, deeply accusative against God. And Naomi insists that both, both Orpah and Ruth, her two daughters-in-law, would be better off in Moab serving their gods. Don't you come back with me. Well, Orpah is convinced. And she heads back never to hear about Orpah again. But Ruth, 
she chooses to determinedly stay with Naomi. Now Naomi insists that Ruth should go back and you cling to your old gods just like your sister-in-law Orpah is going back to Moab and clinging to her gods. Obviously, if Naomi could say that, she's bitter against God and she has compromised her faith. She blames God for her troubles and she doesn't mind other people going back to their own gods. She's obviously struggling and shaken if she has any faith left at all. But Ruth is an extraordinary person. She doesn't choose her own gods, but she's going to choose the God of Naomi, even though Naomi is quite bitter against them. In one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture, she is going to align herself with Naomi for the rest of her life. It reminds you of God's command to Abraham in Genesis 12. Get out of your country, leave your family, leave your kindred to a land that I will show you. And it takes Ruth to follow the example of Abraham. A Moabite, a foreigner, an alien. To show Israel how to obey its own scriptures. They're not going to repent, but Ruth is going to live out the spirit of the scriptures for Israel to see. Ruth determines to go with Naomi, to stay where she will stay. Naomi's people will become her people. Naomi's God will become her God. She will die where Naomi dies, on the pain of death at the hands of God, if she does otherwise. Like a true Israelite, no, she's a Moabite. No, what is she? What is she? Is she a Moabite or is she a true Israelite? What is she? Her beautiful character of grace and mercy is going to shine forth here. And so Ruth stays on the journey with Naomi. Well, the two widows finally arrive in Bethlehem. (laughs) When Naomi shows up, it's been over ten years. When Naomi shows up, the whole city of Bethlehem, it says, is stirred with surprise. (laughs) Naomi's come back got somebody with her. Who is this? Are they prepared for the reception? Is that really Naomi? But years, listen to this, but years of hardship and bitterness have taken the toll on Naomi. She left Israel ten years earlier, a robust woman in her prime, but she has returned broken, haggard, and a destitute old woman. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. I'm not happy. I'm not pleasant. I'm changing my name. I want you to refer to me not as Naomi, but as Mara, which means bitterness. That's my testimony. I'm bitter towards the God of Israel. Don't call me Naomi. Just call me the bitter old hag. Do you realize that's what she did? That's what she said? She's come back in the depths of bitterness, blaming God for all her troubles. I left Bethlehem ten years ago with a husband and sons. I've come back empty. God has done nothing for me but bring misfortune upon my life. If he's a giving God, he hasn't given me anything. 
God has called me into account, found me guilty, passed sentence upon me. He has, I have no future, no security, and I have to beg for a living amongst my own people. In other words, God to her has become an impersonal God who is sovereign but has no grace. God to her is omnipotent but has no compassion. God to her is judicial but has no mercy. Don't call her pleasant. I want to live in my bitterness. Call me the bitter old hag. Quite a story, isn't this? That's chapter 1. That's chapter 1. They've arrived in Bethlehem just at the time of the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, they don't know it. That's perfect timing. Why? Because barley was the first crop to be harvested. And that means there's some bit of a chance here that we can store some extra food up for the dry period to follow. There's a lot that things of things that Ruth doesn't know. A lot of things that Ruth has to learn. And she's going to have to learn the identity of a very wealthy man named Boaz, who actually was very closely related to her deceased father-in-law. But I'm ahead of the story. She doesn't know this. So they got a new existence in Bethlehem. But they have no family, no property to live in, no money. They have to beg for a living. And they're back there. And what are they going to do besides starve? So Ruth is going to make a polite request to her mother-in-law. And she says, I know this is dangerous. I know I'm a stranger here. And I know I'm a foreigner here. And I don't know how other people are going to treat me. But we got to eat. Let me go out and start gleaning in some fields in the harvest time. Naomi agrees with the request because they got to eat. But they're also idea this is going to be a dangerous thing to do. Dangerous for her to do this as a stranger. Built into the laws of Moses is care for the widows and the poor and the orphans and the strangers. And that is at harvest time, these poor people are allowed to go behind the harvesters. And if the harvesters happen to drop anything, the poor and the widows can just pick it up for themselves. And said, I need to go and at least see what I can find. And so Ruth qualifies because she's a stranger and she's a widow. She qualifies on two counts of being allowed to do that. But who's going to treat her well? A foreigner, a Moabite of all people. Don't you remember what the Moabites did to us? Don't you remember the war we had with them? A Moabite of all people. But I have got good news, church. In the most difficult circumstances of your life, I still want to say it out loud. God is in charge. Even of the most difficult circumstances you find yourselves in, God is in charge. Because by a pure stroke of luck, do you believe in luck? By pure chance, do you believe in chance? By a pure stroke of luck, she found herself going to the fields of a man named Boaz, who she didn't know was a very close relative of her deceased father-in-law. 
Ruth has no idea of the importance of this chance encounter. I got some good news for you. God is setting up the answer to your problem even before you know you have a problem. Come on. God is setting up the answer to your problem even before you know you got one. He sees the future far ahead that you do. She has no idea of what the importance of this chance encounter is going to mean to her. All she knows is she needs someone with a little mercy in his heart who is not going to be hard on her and let her into his field to glean the scraps. She had no idea that she needed a kinsman redeemer who could save both her and Naomi. She has no idea. And as she goes into the field of Boaz, Behold, the scripture says, Behold, at that very moment, another stroke of luck. Another stroke of just chance that happened. Boaz himself shows up at that very moment. Why did he show up that day? He comes by to greet his workers. The first thing you're going to learn about Boaz is that he is a gracious man full of mercy. A gracious man full of mercy. He's creating a very positive environment for his workers. You know, the Lord bless you, he says. Oh, that's our boss Boaz. And the Lord bless you too, boss Boaz. You know, they're just a very positive environment. This man has got a good heart. He's merciful and he's full of gracious. Actually, what you're going to find out here, that Boaz is going to personify for us, put some flesh and blood for us to understand. He's going to personify for us the picture of what it means for God to be faithful to his people. It's going to learn about God's very heart, and we're going to learn about God's very nature through this person of Boaz. Let me say it. Boaz was a merciful man. Boaz greets his workers, and he sees this. Who's that woman? Who's she? I haven't seen her around before. Who is this? Who's a stranger in the midst of his workers? Who is this woman? So he asks his foreman, who the Hebrew says is a young man, implying to you that Boaz is an older man. Who is this young woman? Who does she belong to? Calls her young, which means he thinks he's old. Whose wife is she? I mean, who? Who she come from? What family does she belong to? Ruth stands out as somebody who's out of place. So the foreman gives a report of who she is and relates the story. Well, Seth, you know, you know the talk in town about this Moabite that came back with old bitter hag down the street. Do you remember? You know, do um, you remember this? You know, that's that's her. she has dedicated herself to the old bitter one. You know, and that's her. Boaz is impressed with this. That Ruth would do that. She's asked if she could just gather bundles, uh, in, gather into bundles what the harvest, harvesters have dropped. And, you know, she's worked all day and, and only rested for a short period of time. But you're going to learn about who Boaz is in this story. What's he really like? How is he going to respond? Did I tell you that Boaz was a merciful man? Did I tell you that? 
He is a picture of God's covenantal mercy. He calls Ruth by the name of daughter. Which means that compassionate nature means he's already trying to break down the barriers of race. Because you see, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. I mean, the Moabites have no dealings with Israel. He's breaking down the barriers of race. He's going to break down the barriers of sex. And he's going to break down the barriers of age difference. That's his nature. He has a genuine sense of responsibility. So he ensures to her that she never needs to ever go to anybody else's field to glean anything. Matter of fact, I want you to cling to my servant girls. And you can rest assured that I know you're here with fear and trembling, a stranger, an alien, a strange woman amongst men, workers, and all these kinds of things. Let me tell you something. You will never experience any harassment from my men. As a matter of fact, when you're thirsty, go get the water that they have drawn. Did I tell you that Moaz is a merciful man? Ruth is amazed at this such kindness. She bows herself before him because she's very self-conscious of being a foreigner and thus a potential target for abuse and racism. But Ruth had this going for her. She had a good reputation. Her kindness to Naomi has been noised abroad. She has a reputation for being courageous because she has come to be faithful to Naomi. She has come to experience firsthand a new people and a new culture. Boaz saw in Ruth the gift of mercy and mercy in him wanted to reward the mercy he saw in her. When he blessed Ruth, I don't think he had any idea that he would end up being the answer to his prayers for Ruth. Careful who you pray for, you just might marry them. (laughs) Ruth experienced great relief. She didn't know what to expect as she started out this day. She didn't probably expect much because she didn't even have the status of a, a servant girl. But Boaz has compassion that is not affected by your race or your status. Did I tell you that Boaz was a merciful man? Well, after some more work has happened by, it's time to break for something neat, and Boaz says, you come over here with me. He gives her some bread, but he won't even let her eat it dry bread. He's eating nice, pleasant food. After all, he's the wealthy boss. He's eating nice, pleasant food. Just can't. Here's some bread. Here, dip it in this nice little condiment that we have. It'll spice up the bread for you. And he even served her himself. Some roasted grain, and she ate all that she could, and she even had some left over. Did I tell you that Boaz is a merciful man? As Ruth went back to work after that meal, Boaz said to his workers, See that woman there? She's just trying to pick up little drops that you guys leave behind. I tell you what, I want you to pull out the stalks and all and cut them and leave the whole thing down there. She doesn't even have to pull them out of the ground. You just cut them down and let them lie there and let her pick them up. I don't want you to humiliate her, embarrass her, don't abuse her with any snide remarks. Just imagine the potential abuse she could have experienced 
when she arrives as a foreigner, uninvited, low class, an alien in the place. Did I tell you that Boaz was a merciful man? At the end of the long day, boy, Ruth got a pile of stuff. They were generous in the stuff they left behind. She, she gathers all of these stalks and she begins to thresh them to get the grain. And when she weighs it, when she takes it all back, do you realize how much she's gathered? She has gathered 18 kilograms worth of seed and grain. For those in North America, that's about 40 pounds. How many know that's a lot? That is a lot. They had really left a lot behind for her to gather. When she goes home, Naomi sees all this. Naomi is utterly amazed at the amount that Ruth brings home. She asks, if I put it in modern English, she says, where in the world did you go gleaning today? Blessed is the man who paid some attention to you. And, and, and Ruth is emotionally excited about the day. She tells Naomi everything that the field belonged to a man named Boaz. Oh, when Naomi hears Boaz, a little bit of faith and life is injected back into her. She's beginning to recognize that behind the scenes, God is always there. Even in the dark times of your life, God is always there, even behind the scenes. And she now spontaneously breaks into praise. God has been at work in the ordinary affairs of everyday life. But Naomi's thinking ahead. Oh, a relative of my husband, is he? She's going, kinsman, redeemer. Kinsman, redeemer. And for the next six or seven weeks, that's the routine. Naomi goes out, brings a whole pile of stuff home. and but Naomi's mind is spinning just a little bit. So, kinsman redeemer, she's thinking. So, for us who grow up now in this part of the world and not familiar with the laws of Israel and widows and economics and owning land, what is a kinsman redeemer? What is Naomi thinking when she says that, kinsman redeemer? According to the Old Testament law, a kinsman redeemer is somebody who's responsible for the economic well-being of a relative when that relative gets into distress and can't get himself out of the crisis. Sometimes to get yourself out of the crisis, you've got to sell your land, which in Israel is everything. You've got to sell your home, which is everything. Or possibly, you have to sell yourself into slavery to make ends meet. So the law of the kinsman redeemer was designed to maintain the wholeness and the health of family relationships even after a person has died. The responsibilities, according to the laws of Moses, of a kinsman redeemer, is to ensure that land property never passes out of the family. The clan must never lose title to the land. Because in that agriculture society, property is the means of your security. Property is the means of your livelihood. So... 
you, you, you have no future without it. And the kinsman redeemer is responsible to make sure you never lost possession of the land. The property, the, the responsibility of a kinsman redeemer, if you had to sell yourself into slavery, he'd come and buy you out. A kinsman redeemer had the right to track down and execute murderers of any of his family. The kinsman redeemer had the ability to receive restitution on behalf of a relative that had it coming but had died. The kinsman redeemer was responsible to make sure justice was served in every case against the relative. That was built into the laws of Moses. There are certain conditions that the kinsman redeemer had to meet. He had to be, first of all, a kinsman. You have to belong to the family line. You can't be a stranger. You have to be a family member. You have to be in a position that you can do it without hurting your own resources. You have to be willing to do it because you're not going to gain anything by doing this. And another thing, you have to be asked to do it. And besides that, there's also another issue at stake in Naomi's mind is this. My husband's name, because there are no sons, my husband's name is going to disappear off the face of the earth. In the Old Testament law, if a man died without bearing children, then it was the responsibility of your brother to marry your wife and bear children on your behalf, and the first child they would have would become your dead brother's son, not your son. It's called leveret marriage. I remember being in, in Israel many, many years ago, and the guide, for some reason, was talking about this strange law about raising up a son on behalf of your dead brother with his wife. And he, and he says this, my, my brother just got married. May he live a long and prosperous life. <laughs> you know, you know, he didn't apparently want his, his, his brother's wife, apparently. May he live a long and prosperous life. So Naomi knows all of these things, so she's hatching a plan. And it says, we, our daily provision has been solved, but what about the more important issue of my husband, dead husband's name continuing? Is it going to pass out of history? Has the family line come to an end? Is Ruth going to remain single the rest of his life? And there's that property that he sold that needs to be redeemed. So she was concerned for Ruth's future. So that's why she had urged Ruth to go back to Moab long before that. But Naomi has seen that Boaz was a kind, merciful man. And when the real need is represented here, I can count on mercy responding. Amen. I can count on mercy responding. Such mercy is not going to turn a deaf ear to this real need. Did I ever tell you that Boaz was a merciful man? Now, Naomi hatches a very risky plan to get the attention of Boaz concerning Ruth. If it is an elaborate plan for sure that needs the hidden supervision of God in the background. It's risky, it could be completely misunderstood, and it's certainly out of the norm. It involves visiting the man in the night hours in secret. Now for all you young unmarried girls, close your ears. Because 
I don't want to teach a young woman how to propose marriage to an older man. This is highly unusual. The stakes are high. Here you have a woman proposing to a man, a field worker proposing to the field owner, a foreigner proposing marriage to a citizen. Very strange indeed. Quite an elaborate setup in Ruth chapter 3. But did I tell you that Boaz was a merciful man? Have you heard that yet? Maybe Boaz needed this, this strange intervention just to get the ball rolling. Maybe he didn't know that Ruth was now past the grieving stage for her previously deceased husband and that Ruth was now ready to put off the garments of widowhood. Boaz responds in kindness because he knows the motive of Ruth. What motive is after is seeking the betterment of her mother-in-law. Ruth is acting in covenantal relationship with Naomi, and this touches deeply Boaz deeply. Boaz praises her for her mercy. She could have run after the younger men more her age, but she hasn't. Ruth has been known for her noble character, and she has a reputation for it throughout all the place. Boaz agrees with what is proposed, but there is a complication. Yes, I am a kinsman redeemer, but there's somebody who was first in line besides me. I'm second in line. There's somebody else who was first in line. I can only act in accordance with the law, and this other man is first in line to do this act. But I will sort it out. I will do it in the morning. Did I tell you? that Boaz was a merciful man. Boaz sends Ruth home early in the morning, before the dawn. can't let an old woman stay the night with me. You know, that's just strange behavior. So it could be interpreted. But he sends a gift of grain back for Naomi as well. Maybe this is his way of thanking Naomi for providing him to action. Maybe it's even a form of a bridal payment. Naomi, I'm sure, spent the whole night wide awake. Ruth comes home in the morning, and they're both, and she's full of anticipation. How did it go? What happened? What happened there? They're both pumped up. They're, they're pumped up with excitement and anticipation when she says how God has just supervised all of these things. And Boaz has moved to action. So the next morning, he immediately goes to the city gate where all the business of the city is transacted where court is being held. And it just so happens, pure luck, pure chance, that number one in line to do this happens to walk by at that very moment. Are you sure God's not involved in the ordinary chance encounters of your life? Mr. So-and-so. That's all the name we know. Mr. So-and-so. Come sit down. I've got some business with you. And he sits down. He says, now to do this business, I need a quorum. I need ten elders. So he runs around and gathers ten elders. And how he finds them right then and there, I guess God does orchestrate all of these things. He says, we've got business to do here. You know Naomi has come back, and you're closer related to her than I am. And she's come back, and that brings up an old issue of a land that her husband, Elimelech, has sold It needs to be redeemed for the sake of the family. The return of Naomi has brought up this issue. 
The land needs to be redeemed. Keep it in the family. Now, Mr. So-and-so, you don't even know his name. Mr. So-and-so, will you redeem it for the family? He could even use it for his own use and let Naomi live off the increase of the land. So, Mr. So-and-so says, okay, I agree and I will do it. After all that God has set up, this looks like a complication. Have you ever felt that God has led you? And God has directed you. And you could see all the signs of the fingerprints of God everywhere urging you. And it's all moving forward, all to be devastated in one moment by a complication. Ever had the experience? Ever had the experience? What looks like a reversal is not going to be a reversal because did I tell you something? Boaz is a merciful man. He brings up the issue of Ruth. There's another responsibility besides redeeming the land because the name of the deceased landowner needs to be preserved as well. And I need to inform you that there is a widow involved here that's attached to the land. And if you want to get to redeem the land, it's for the sake of keeping Eliminex lame alive. And to do that, you're going to have to marry Ruth. The Moabite. When he hears that, I'm going to have to have a child by her. It's not even going to be my child. Do you realize that he may claim my inheritance for my other children and it may siphon up? No, this is no economic sense to me. I can do it. You can have her. Well, Boaz is emphatic. Mr. So-and-so, they have this habit here. You're going to do business. You've got to take your shoe off. And you just got to hand the shoe. You don't want it? <laughs> You don't want it? No deal. No deal. <laughs> you know? And, and that, that meant the action is complete. That's the, the public witness, the handing over of your sandals, the public witness that the deal is done. You've signed it on the dotted line. Mr. and so-and-so is out of history, folks. You don't even know his name. Let me tell you what happens to people who don't care to do God's mercy. They are erased from history. Boaz has won the court's approval. He begins to boast in what he's accomplished in the sight of witnesses. He's redeemed the plan for the family. He's going to keep the name of the family intact. It's not going to die out. But his most happy thing is, is, I got her. The hand of Ruth is mine. Well, the crowd around there is excited. They are just pumped. There's such a positive and excited response. They begin to bless, uh, pronounce blessings upon them. Boaz, this woman coming into your home, may she be the same stature as Rachel and Leah. You know, the one who gave birth to the twelve sons that became the nation of Israel. Boaz, you're going to have a reputation in Bethlehem. Ruth is going to join the ranks of the famous women of Israel. And the Lord does a miracle here. Here there is a miracle. The Lord opens up Ruth's womb that couldn't conceive for ten years. Opens it up. She gives birth to a boy they named Obed, who happened to be the father of a man named Jesse, who happened to be the father of a man named David. King. David. God can take the darkest moments of your life and make them work 
for good. Amen? Well, Ruth has gone from a widow to being a foreigner in a strange land to a field worker to a servant to a wife to be elevated to the heroes of faith. I ask you a question. Isn't God good? What about Naomi? You given up your bitterness yet, you old hag? <laughs> Have you given up that bitterness? She has been renewed in her old age. She has been given another son through Ruth. She had lost two sons, but now she has a daughter-in-law that's worth more than seven sons. That which has been lost has been replaced many times over. God takes emptiness and gives fullness. Ever feel empty, folks? He gives fullness in His place. I'm going to tell you another story, believe it or not. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The high point of creation is man who was made in the image of God. And you were created to be a joint heir together with Christ at His appearing. But because of our bartering and our trading with sin, famine has come into our lives. We have lost claim to our inheritance. Instead of our inheritance, we've been forced to sojourn in foreign and a barren land where death takes its toll. We even have become bitter. We're bitter against God and we blame God for our circumstances when we're the ones who broke covenant with Him. We're enslaved, we're spiritually bankrupt, and we have no power to reclaim our status and no power to claim our inheritance. Our life has been taken from us. We need a kinsman redeemer. We need somebody who will avenge us. Like Job, when we're in the depths of despair, there's got to come a cry from our heart saying, but I know my redeemer lives. Is there anybody qualified? who has both the authority, the power, and the ability, as well as the compassion to help us. I have got good news for you. The answer is, yes, there is. There is a man who is greater than Boaz. There is a new kinsman redeemer who possesses all the graces of God, who treats you and me better than we deserve who shows us kindness and mercy to us when we're in our low and needy estate, who will break down all the barriers between us and Him, who will come down to our level, who will meet our needs in abundance because He is exhaustive in His grace. Amen. Did I tell you that the Lord is gracious? Did I ever tell you that the Lord is long-suffering? Did I ever tell you the Lord is abundant in goodness and in truth? Did I ever tell you that the Lord keeps mercy for thousands? Did I ever tell you the Lord forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin? Did I ever tell you that the Lord became one of us? Did I ever tell you that Jesus, God's eternal Son, took on flesh and blood, that even though He was God, He became like unto His brethren? Did I ever tell you He became our kinsman, Redeemer? in order to forgive us. Did I ever tell you that? 
Did I ever tell you that Jesus is in a position to redeem us without destroying his own resources? Did I ever tell you his status is not in jeopardy if he pours himself out to you and me? Did I tell you that his home is the glory of heaven and you can't bankrupt it? That I tell you he's rich in love, mercy, compassion, and he's slow to anger. That I tell you that the Lord is willing to redeem us. He is not like Mr. So-and-so. That I tell you that nobody took his life from him, but he freely gave it. That I tell you that you have to ask him for his help. That I tell you that Jesus, the Son of God, is yours and mine, our true and eternal kinsman, Redeemer. Through our kinsman Redeemer's death, resurrection, and exaltation, you have been reinstated to your inheritance. Amen. You have been reinstated to your inheritance. Life has come back to us and we are renewed. Don't call me bitter old hag. Call me Naomi. Amen. Pleasant. Amen. Bitterness against God is replaced with spontaneous praise to God. Forgiveness includes more than God putting away your sins. Forgiveness includes the restoration back to you of everything you have lost. Let us praise our Redeemer. My Redeemer lives. His name is Jesus. What a picture. What a picture of forgiveness. Hallelujah. Amen.